Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Uh, quick question. What do you think of the shirt? It looks like a stick of Blackpool Rock, doesn't it, or something? I'm always into recycling, and this shirt was once, once at some point in its life, a deck chair. Marks and Spencer's finest. You're jealous, aren't you, Martin? Yeah, I could tell. I could tell. As a pastor, you kind of have seasons where things go great and you imagine all manner of things will come from that. And you have seasons, like in anybody's life, I suppose, where things are a little bit more challenging. Um, I, I recall a number of years ago, standing in a moment that defined some things for me. We were in a church in Bristol. Numbers there were increasing. We were up to five and 600 people on a regular basis. God was doing great things in our youth work. The Holy Spirit was turning up. People were experiencing all kinds of manifestations of his goodness. And yet, in this moment, looking out across the congregation, I felt God speak to me, and this is what he said. He said this, the biggest challenge facing the church in the West is not Islam. It's not the rise of secular humanism. It's not any of those things. The biggest challenge facing the church in this hour is whether or not those who claim to be disciples of Jesus will truly give up their hearts and their lives to his purposes. And in that moment, I recognized something. I recognized that the crowd, as large as it was, as profound as it seemed, wasn't an indicator to us of whether or not people were truly living day by day their life for Jesus. I recognized that as the songs were great and we enjoyed the fullness of the blessing of all the, it's a bit loud now. The fullness of the blessing of all that God wanted to do, that a crowd doesn't determine a fact that you've raised an army of people who are passionate about God, living their lives moment by moment for his glory. In fact, it's true to say that in just about every football stadium around the world at this time, crowds of people gather. It doesn't really mean that the football team is successful. It just means that people are quite loyal and indeed very fiercely loyal to their particular team. So we can never judge how su successful we are by crowds. Crowds in and of themselves will never be the measure of whether or not people individually as well as collectively are walking the walk with Jesus Christ. And so I have a question, and the question is this. It's been burning in my heart for 10 years. Will we just settle for being converts? People who are persuaded that Jesus is a good idea. Will we turn up at the things that we need to turn up, but not allow God to show up in the moments of our lives that are less than glamorous? What kind of follower of Jesus am I determined to be? And I believe that's a very important question because what I do with that question will determine whether or not what Jesus promises will come to pass. Now in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says that he has come that we should have life and life in all its fullness. But while we sing about that and we talk about that and we pray for that to happen, that very life that Jesus is talking about has every connection to the fact that you are either walking in fellowship as a disciple with God or not. And we can sing the songs and prophesy the moments and declare and pray for all of the blessings, but actually Jesus never saw them as independent realities. The life that Jesus promises is directly connected to the life that you live. 
And that life is meant to be lived as a servant. It's meant to be lived as someone who is pursuing Jesus with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and making every decision that you make count for him. And so it's a challenge to us, I know. And on Pentecost Sunday, we could have talked about all manner of things, but I want to carry on on what I believe is the foundational realities of what it means to walk with Jesus. We've called this series, The Delight of Discipline. Now, if you're anything like me, discipline doesn't feel delightful. Amen? You know when you reach for that extra bun at the buffet, and your conscience tells you no, but your stomach tells you yes. Those moments can be hard, but they, are, they turn up in every which way during the course of every day of our lives. We are either living for him, or we're living for ourselves. And those decisions become very clear as we begin to read the Word of God. So we're going to continue our conversation this morning about the delight of discipline. I want particularly for us to look at this spiritual discipline, which if I'm honest with you, alongside prayer is probably the most neglected in the Western church. Have you noticed, because I surely have, that over the last maybe 10, 15 years, your engagement with the Scriptures has decreased You have a Bible app, I'm sure, or maybe two. And what happens is every morning that Bible app sends out a scripture to you, and here's what we tend to do with that. Read it. For a second or two, we read the Bible app, and we assure ourselves that we're engaging with the Word of God. I want to tell you this. It's a big shock, I'm sure, for some of us, but that isn't how Jesus intended us to engage with his Word. The Bible says of itself that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, separating light from death, truth from untruth. In fact, it says more than that. It says that we shall know that truth, and that truth will have the capacity to set us free. I've also noticed that when we gather like this, we put all the scriptures up on the screen for you. I'm going to be doing that myself in a minute. I call that death by a thousand PowerPoints. And we do that for ease because so often people aren't carrying the Bible or they don't have it on their phone or if you're new to the church and you don't know where things are, all of that is good. But here's what we're doing. Here's how we're educating you, that you don't have to read the Scripture for yourself. Now, there was a time in meetings whenever we opened up the Bible and we said, turn to this, that, and the other, and all the flicking of the pages would take place. And people would seek to follow their own journey reading through the Scriptures for themselves. And now we've got this massive sense of disengagement because if it isn't up on the screen, sometimes we don't bother looking it up on our phone. You see, the Word of God has become something for all of us that seems a little bit fragile in the sense of our engagement with it. And it's so important to understand that if I'm truly a follower of Jesus, if I'm truly a disciple, let me tell you what a disciple is. A disciple is an apprentice. If I truly want to learn from the Master, if I truly want to come into partnership with what he's doing here on the earth, I cannot circumvent the word of God. The word of God is the very sustenance and power that God has given me to live this life. And so I want to encourage you, please in these days, do not be lightweight in your engagement with the scriptures. It's so important that we study the word of God, that we discipline ourselves to come to the Word of God on a regular basis and not just read it, but absorb it and let it touch us in the deepest parts of our lives. Let it challenge us in the way we think. For without that, what really are we doing with the Word of God? 
This is why we study. This is why we read the Bible. I'm sure you can read that, but let me read it out for you. We study God's word, but what we're really doing is replacing all destructive habits of thought with new life-giving habits. So when I come to the word of God, I must come in humility. Here's the truth of this. I'm coming as a learner. I'm coming as a child. I'm coming to seek to understand. I can't come to the word of God and presume that I know everything that's written in it. Even if I've read it a thousand times through, and some of us have been on this journey for a long time, every single time I come to the word of God, I must be open to correction. I must be open to to revelation. I must be open to aligning myself to what Jesus wants to say to me. And you know, if you're thinking you're unusual in that manner, let me tell you what Jesus used to say to all of the people who listened to him speak. And by the way, They said of him when he spoke, this man speaks like no man speaks. Why? Because he's taking truth and making it practically available to people. Jesus said, whenever you hear this truth, this truth should have an impact on you. But he also said this, he said this, you have heard it said, but I now say. In other words, as a society, as a culture, as a group of people, we have all kinds of presumptions about what is true. And have you noticed in our world, whatever you think is true is now true? And you might be deceived and you might not even be truthful to your own self in those matters. There is only one who is truth and that is God himself. He said of himself he was the way, he was the truth and he was the life. So we come to God's word to have our minds renewed, to brought back into alignment and into partnership with the truth of the nature and the person of God. The Apostle Paul writes it to us this way in Romans 12 verse 2. If you have a Bible, why don't you look at it? Let's do as we say we will do. I'll wait for you to get there. The Apostle Paul tells us here that we are transformed. Why did you say that word out loud? What are we transformed into? Any offers on that? The likeness of Jesus. Apostle Paul tells us that we are transformed. How are we transformed into the likeness of Jesus? Talk to me, church. By the renewing of our minds. The presupposition here is that our minds need renewing. You see, prior to you coming to know Jesus, you may not have recognized this. Perhaps you can't see it clearly still, but you had a whole bunch of thought process, processes and mindsets that are contrary to the word of God. All kinds of thoughts that direct the way you live your life, in many ways, they need to be renewed. They need to be restored. It's almost like when you get a phone and you bring it back to its original settings. God wants to restore us to the people we were supposed to be before sin had its impact on us. Now, you may not think you have ungodly mindsets. You may not think you have mindsets that are a problem to you at all, but let me just test the water, a little bit of a a, a test, a watershed moment for us. Do you believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? Now, you believe the scripture, but do you live the life? So if I was to ask you now to come with me to Northfield and preach the gospel on a street corner... 
while your friends are getting a Greg's across the road from you. Here's the first thing you'd say to me, I'm not an evangelist, Pastor. No, you're not, but you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. See, it's one thing to have the concept of truth. It's a whole other thing to live it. If I was to say to you, we're going to pop to somebody's house this afternoon. Somebody's dying of cancer. They've got a matter of hours to live. And God has deposited in his church the power of life and death. So we're going to go and speak life over this person. I'm relying on you ultimately to raise this person from the dead, if indeed they should die. Here's what you'd say. I'm sorry. My chicken dinner is coming off at 2.30. And you'd find some excuse that appeases the invitation because you don't really believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You want to believe it, you're trying to believe it, but as yet, it's not quite there. Yeah, am I telling you the truth? You're talking to me now, you're fed up with me. I'm telling you the truth. That's how we live. But Jesus says the opposite. He says we can do all things. All things. Well, what kinds of things are the all things he's referring to? Well, I believe we can prophesy. Oh, hang on, hang on. Maybe not all things, Pastor. I've never prophesied. I've never heard the voice of God. But all things... God would say to you today, you can overturn the realities of social injustice in our culture. And you would say, me? Little me? Tiny me? Do you have any idea what I'm like? Yes, I do. Because I'm like it too. But Jesus says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. This is going well, this, isn't it? And that's just one example of a thousand, maybe more in our lives, where we know what the Word says, but we haven't embraced it, absorbed it, conditioned our souls by it, aligned our mind to it, and engaged our heart with it to the point that it becomes a reality for us. That time in Bristol when God showed me the church that looked successful, he said, you have to make up your mind, Simon. Do you want to fill a building with converts or would you like to fill a building or a city with disciples? Now, it's going to take a huge amount of effort for some of us to move from being a convert to being a disciple. Let me tell you some of the attributes of a disciple. They do what God tells them to do. How are you doing on that? Have you noticed, like me, you cherry-pick the bits you like? Is it, talk to me. Have you noticed, like, oh, I love the fact that God loves me, but I don't really want to love her. Oh, I'm so grateful for his forgiveness, but I've really got an issue with you. You see, we, we seem to have what I would con probably conclude is double-mindedness. <laughs> and the Bible says of that that a double-minded person becomes unstable. In other words, their consistency is lacking. Their progress is marginal. We don't want to be double-minded, do we? We want our yes to be yes and our no to be no. We want to know the truth. We want that truth to set us free. And we want to demonstrate that truth to the people that God has placed around us in our life. And for that to happen, 
You and I have got to allow God to transform our minds. About 10, maybe 15 years ago, Jane and I were involved in a ministry called Restoring the Foundations. It's a wonderful inner healing ministry. And it was particularly set up for pastors and leaders in churches. I don't know if you realize this, but some of the pastors and leaders in our churches are the most broken individuals you will ever come across. And the impetus of this ministry was to try and help men and women who've walked with Jesus and seen all manner of great and sometimes terrible things keep going and keep loving and keep believing God for great stuff. And it looked at four key areas in the individual's life. Sins of the fathers and resulting curses, the generational dynamics that impact the human soul. Soul and spirit hurts, those things that have happened to them as individuals that have affected the way they see God, see themselves, and relate to others. Third one was ungodly beliefs. Anything they believed that didn't align with the character and the nature and the person of God. And the fourth one was demonic oppression. Those things that they've tried to break free from, but have become so habitual, they don't know how to resolve the issue in their life. Now, my biggest surprise is not that people had soul and spirit hurts, because you can't walk in this world without being hurt. Have you noticed that? It wasn't a shock to me that sometimes things people have handed down in their generation spiritually had an impact on people's lives. But the biggest shock to me was this, that these men and women who week by week, day by day, preached the word of God had up to 25 ungodly beliefs. And a godly belief is anything that they believed that counteracted or wasn't in alignment with the Word of God. Now, if those are ministers who study the Word of God, preach the Word of God, teach people the Word of God, can you imagine how many more ungodly beliefs most of us would have? All manner of things that we think are true, but they are not true in comparison to the Word of God. Let me give you an example. Do you believe that you are loved unconditionally? How does that turn up in the way you treat other people? How does that turn up in the way you love yourself? It's one thing to say, yes, I believe God loves me unconditionally, but that truth is meant to affect the way you live your life. It's meant to affect the things you think. It's meant to affect the way you relate to other people. Thousands of years ago when I was young and thin, (laughs) dinosaurs walked the earth. I remember sitting not far where, where Liz was here, in this building and a speaker came and he said these words he said you are wonderfully and fearfully made now I'd heard it by this point many times and God has knitted you together in your mother's womb which I'd also heard many many times but as that word of truth which is the truth the reality over my life landed in my heart this was my response it shocked me Yes, I know God has knitted me together in my mother's womb, but I think in me he's dropped a stitch because there's just something not right about the way I am. Does anybody ever feel like that? Come on, tell the truth, you're in church. You can go home and lie later. (laughs) I was so conditioned by rejection that to believe with any clarity or certainty that I was precious in the eyes of God has taken a lifetime, a lifetime to manifest itself in me. And I want to thank God for the work and the patience he's had 
in my life to bring me away from always feeling inferior or insufficient or shameful or not enough, which was indeed the sound bites of my life, to a place where I know that I am accepted in the beloved. That's a work of the Spirit, but I had to partner with that truth. I had to renounce the lies that I'd been told. I had to detach myself from the mindsets that I had, and I had to choose to believe that what God said was true. And not only was it true, it's freed me to love myself the way God would have me love myself. And I mean that in a healthy way. I'm not kissing my arm when I get home. You're fabulous, you are. You're absolutely wonderful. So healthy self-love is a good thing, particularly when it comes into partnership with the one who loves you unconditionally. It brings healing and restoration to your soul. But here's the greater good of that truth. I can now love other people. I now trust other people. I'm open in my heart towards other people. You see, Jesus puts it this way. Finally, brothers, Philippians 4 verse 8. Paul writing the voice of God to the nation. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is noble or honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if anything is excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about such things. In other words, your mind needs to be filled with the greatness and the goodness and the clarity and the assurance of the reality of God. Your mind needs to be filled with truth. Your mind needs to be filled with that which is good. Now, if we were to do a straw poll here and ask, what have you used your mind for this week? I will guarantee you that 99% of the things you were thinking about were tripe. Have you ever had those conversations in your head when you had an argument with somebody and you wished you'd said something more? Have you ever had those, if only she'd come back to me, I'd tell her what I feel, I know what I've done. What was that? Was that noble, was that praiseworthy, was that excellent, these things think upon? No. You see, your mind, like my mind, has been so conditioned by living outside of relationship with God that we don't realize that we've all, we've all got all kinds of mindsets that are associated with our old life. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans, if you want to embrace fully this new life Jesus has given you, you need to work on your mind because your mind will either take you back to where you came or take you deeper into that which God has provided for you. Your mind leads your life. I was chatting this week at a, a leader's thing. They invited me over, and I think I destroyed some people's ideologies about certain things. It's not intentional. It's just I'm a little bit odd. And um, here's, here's the, the, the wonderful thing. The wonderful thing. That my mind now has a doorway because of the grace and the mercy of God and I can step away from bad mental habits and agreements into positive truths that bring me life. Jesus 
has broken the curse of my old man's nature and has placed in me his nature. I am a new creature. Listen to the words. The old has gone and the new has now come. In other words, I don't have to live captive to the way I used to think. I don't have to live connected to the wrong thinking that got me into all kinds of problems who the sun sets free will be really free, but that freedom comes down to what you use your mind for. How you train your mind to step more and more into the available new reality that Jesus Christ has purchased for you. It's not automatic, you won't do it overnight. It takes a lot of work and a lot of practice. I was chatting with somebody recently and they said this to me, he said, I don't know what it is, but I get this thought and it concerns me. And before I know where I am, I'm thinking more thoughts about the same thing. And before I know where I am, I'm completely worried and anxious about what's happening or could happen in my life. Does anybody recognize that pattern? And I'm listening to this young lady and I look at her and I say, well, why don't you try a different thought? If that initial thought that comes to you is built upon by repetitive thinking around it, which leads to all kinds of emotions associated to it, try a different thought. Do you know why that's important? Because the Bible says this about that. Take every thought captive, every vain imagination that sets itself up against the purposes of God. I don't know if anyone's told you this recently. If you're a born-again believer in this room, you have power to stop yourself from thinking things that do not lead you to life. Hello? You're not subject to conditions and situations because your mind should be fixed on him. It should be stayed on him. It says God will keep those in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on him. Now... I know I get myself into all kinds of trouble because people think, you know, I just live in the sky and I don't have life and I don't have problems and I don't have situations. But I know that I know that I know that I can think my way into a problem or I can think my way into a promise. I am not any longer subject to my old nature. Hello. The old nature has died. Why don't we say it out loud? My old nature has died. Why do you keep bringing it back to the fore? So some of us in this room who say, well, you don't know what it's like. I've got habits. I've got compulsions. Oh, I know what it's like. But if you can think your way deeper into those things, you can think your way away from them. You have the power to choose what you want out of life. I've worked with lots of people with addictions over the years. It seems to be somewhat of a, a ministry. And most of the time, nobody wakes up at the age of seven and decides to be a heroin addict. What a life ambition. You go into the career as a at school and you're a teenager. Oh, I think I'll be a heroin addict. Here's what happens. Circumstance. Say circumstance. Something happens in somebody's life. I never forget the story of Emma. Emma, young 15-year-old girl, her sister was killed, murdered actually, 
very suddenly, and her whole life got turned upside down. She was very close to her sister. They were about a year or so apart. Crisis happened to Emma, 15 years of age. Was she looking for it? Did she do anything to create it? No. And then alongside crisis was culture. Because around her, in the stables where they had horses, there was a young man who helped her, found her attractive, she found him attractive, and he said, I'll help you, I'll get you something to stop the pain. So crisis and culture. And before you know where you are, those two things have an agreement, and Emma became subject to a life of addiction to heroin. So bad was that addiction that she used to sell herself on the streets of Glasgow to facilitate the need that she had. When she died and she was murdered by a group of men who hired her and then chopped her up and left her remains on the outskirts of Glasgow, her family did not know that she was a prostitute. They knew she had an addiction. This is life, this is real life. Did Emma, could Emma make choices about some of those things? Well, at the beginning, probably yes. But over time, as she agreed with them and associated with them, they began to dictate her life. But here's the good news. Emma came across us as a church, came in and gave her heart to Jesus. Oh, that should have excited you, you miseries. She gave her heart to Jesus. You know, she spent her whole life trying to be free, and the one who was freedom himself came in and lived in her heart. And that day was the glorious day, and she started to choose certain things. She started to choose to live differently, and unfortunately, she had a relapse, and that relapse ended up in this final moments of her life where she was used by four or five men and abused and cut up to hide the evidence, and her body remains were scattered outside of Glasgow. When Jesus came to live in you, he gave you back the ability to choose. I've seen that in the most difficult circumstances. People you think could never be free have got free because they started to believe the truth. They started to receive the truth. They started to change the way they saw themselves, the way they saw truth, and eventually that truth made them free. God's word will not return to him void. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm drawing you to a place now. God's word will not return to him void, but will accomplish what he sets it out to do. Emma, in her weakness, went backwards. But you, in your understanding, can move forwards. And Jesus makes it unmistakably clear to us that the knowledge of the truth will do what? Notice the phrase, the knowledge of the truth. Now the knowledge of the truth is so much more than just reading the truth. The knowledge of the truth is an internal agreement and awareness of a permanent reality in the nature and the purposes of God. And I believe that our minds will either take us to Jesus or they'll take us from Jesus. A couple of years ago, I bought a different car. Um, to be honest with you, I'd never really 
paid much attention, but it was a lease deal, and I got um, a Range Rover Evoque at a very good price. Well, do you know what? It seemed to me that overnight the road was full of a Range Rover Evokes. Everywhere I went, there was a Range Rover Evoque. Why? Were they not there the day before? Talk to me. Of course they were. But because I got a Range Rover Evoque, I was paying attention to a Range Rover Evoque. I was reading the manual of a Range Rover Evoque. I went online to look at the dynamics and abilities of a Range Rover Evoque. So as a man thinks, he is evoked. You see, our minds are incredible things. And if we are aware of how God wants to change and transform us, we will want our minds to come in to submission to Jesus. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. It should become so much a part of you that it will set you free. I want to take you to this scripture. This scripture has bounced back into my heart after a period of time. Because God is about bringing freedom to every part of your life. Anybody happy about that? God is about bringing truth, his truth, to every aspect of your human experience. Is anybody happy about that? And the Spirit of God has been given to us to lead us into all truth. And he does that as we partner with him and make decisions that are associated with the truth of who God says we are and what God says is true and getting rid of some old associations that have kept us trapped and hindered. But this is how God started to speak to me about this. I noticed that in the Old Testament that this seemed to be how God engaged with the Israelites. It says in Deuteronomy 11 verse 18 that they should write the laws on the gates and the doorposts and bind them on their wrists so that they shall be frontels, in other words, consistently visible between their eyes. Why did God ask his people to write the truths on the doorposts? Well, I can only come to this conclusion that every time they went out for business, they saw the truth. The truth was visible to them. Every time they went into their community to do something for the benefit of other people, they saw the truth. Every external appointment that was made, they had to pass through the doorway and they would have had the visual representation that you're stepping into a world that has its truth, but this, this is the truth. Not only stepping into their world, Engaging in commerce and relationships, they were encouraged by God to make knowledge of the truth, but when they came home, why is that important? Because I don't know about you, but I'm all right on a Sunday. The songs are kicking off and people are worshiping Jesus. It's Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday's bleak. Thursday, I'm all right. There's some good things happening at church. What I'm trying to say to you is, not only do I go out into the world and need to be reminded that God's truth is superior to all truths in this world, but when I come home, I need to cleanse myself by 
acknowledging the truth of God as I come back into my home context. Whether I'm going out or I'm coming in, I'm drawn to a superior truth than the truths that the world propagates. And then he says, write them and put them on your arms. Put them around your wrists. Why? Because when I go to love someone, I have truth. Visible, tangible, clear understanding of what this relationship should look like. That can be anything like reaching out and hitting somebody in anger, to touching somebody that I should not be touching, to embracing the people that I should be loving, and disengaging from the ones who will lead me to temptation. Not only is it apparent that every time I use my arms for anything, God's truth is superior to whatever truth is presenting itself, but I'm reminded that these are holy hands and they are dedicated to the purposes of God. Are you with me? Holy hands. We're lifting up holy hands. When I go to work, the truth is with me. I work and I work and I work knowing that I'm not working for mammon or for man, but I do everything as if I'm doing it unto the Lord. These are physical representations of a superior truth to any truth that anybody wants to propagate. Have you ever been in a job where you weren't appreciated? This is it for me. <laughs> Have you ever gone to work and you were treated harshly or unfairly? Come on, talk to me. Bind up your wrists with truth because you are not a slave to those masters. You are a servant of the Most High God. On your wrist are the truth. God has shackled you with truth so that you be a slave to righteousness. And no matter what that person does or says or acts around you, you know the truth because you see the truth. And that truth has the capacity to set you free from the lies that people say in this society are true about you. Hallelujah, somebody, please. In the New Testament, we find that they're not written on the doorpost anymore. These truths are written on our heart. They're embedded, carved into the essence of who we are. I think it was King David who said these words. I've hidden your word in my heart. In other words, I've allowed my heart to be marinated by the truth of who you are, God. Everything about you has changed everything about me. I have hidden your word in my heart. I chew on it. I marinate on it. I consider it. I ponder it. I value it. I think it's the best thing ever for me to understand it. I have hidden it deep within me. The heart is at the center of the human experience. My love for you, my affection for your word, they drive my life, God. I've hidden your word in my heart. And this is the outworking of that, that I won't sin against you, that I won't believe a lie that somebody else tells me is the truth, that I won't be subjected to a culture that's inferior to the one of the kingdom of love, that I won't find myself returning to orphan mindsets when the Son has set me free to be a child of the Most High God. 
I've hidden your word in my heart that when the world tells me grab everything you can because that's how you win, I give everything I am because that's how Jesus won. Because your word determines who I am. It determines what I think. It determines what I believe to be true. And it determines how I show up in my home, in my bedroom, with my wife, with my children, in my workplace. There are four ways in which the discipline of study function. But quickly before we go to them, and they'll be very quick because I've got somewhere to be. There's a massive difference between meditation and study. Meditation is devotional. We've talked about that a few weeks ago. But study is analytical. When we study, we engage with truth from a very different place. It's not about what we experience. It's about what we are becoming aware that we need to know. And these are the four steps to study. Write them down. Repetition. Did I say repetition? Did I mention repetition? Write them down. Repetition channels the mind in a specific direction. It begins to ingrain a habit or a train of thought. And regular repeated repetition trains an individual to create a conduit, an avenue by which change can be experienced. The mind is trained and will eventually stop altering and conforming to all patterns of behavior and eventually will start to come into partnership and alignment with what is being reinforced. I find that this is a very old-fashioned approach to learning, but in recent years it's been celebrated by scientists who have recognized that our minds need to be trained to think certain ways. When Paul is speaking of being renewed in your mind, he's talking about neural pathways in the brain that have been formed by habits that were lustful or indeed pleasurable or sensual in some way. Those neural pathways cause us to think automatically certain things and respond as a result of that to certain thought patterns. Studies with people who are addicted to pornography will tell you that their minds have been trained and conditioned. These neural pathways have been funneled and, and formed in them. So it only takes one look of something for them to act out on the very thing that they've been looking at. You see, when your mind has been conditioned by something, it will automatically go to the outcome. If that's true in a scientific way, it must be true for us as Christians in a more powerful way. Because if we train our minds to think the thoughts that they should think, our automatic responses and outcomes will be quick, clear. So I want all of my neural pathways reinvigorated by truth. I want my mind to be renewed deep in the core of who I am. I want to know truth and I want that truth to set me free. And repetitive study. And what I mean by study is not a glancing across at the words, but actually deep understanding and comprehension of those things. They start to form in me an automatic response where my outcome starts to be the very thing that God wants. Listen to this scripture and listen to it from that point of view. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now what he's not saying is, the proof of your love for me 
is that you keep my commandments. It's not legalism. He's saying, if you love me, if you let me re-orchestrate the internal world of your life, the outworking of that is that you will do what is right. You can't study the one who is right and not do what is right. You can't focus on the one who is always right and not do what is right. He says, if you love me, the outworking of that is that you, you will end up keeping my commandments. It's almost like effortless change. The change comes because we have reinvigorated our minds with truth. The second thing is this, concentration. As well as repetition, we need concentration. We need to bring the mind repeatedly to a concept or truth. And we must concentrate on that truth. And that means simply this, to really focus on what we're studying. And when we do this, our learning increases. Repetition without concentration will not produce the results that we're hoping for. Concentration centers the mind to focus on what is true. And the human mind has an incredible ability to concentrate. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but one of the things that's happening in our world is that we are completely distracted by all kinds of things. And so the discipline to concentrate on something seems to be something of the past. I think it's going to make a comeback and be something of the present. When a human being consecrates on something, when they begin to really study something and examine something, they start to have a knowledge and a substance of the way they live their lives. And it's not just head knowledge, it becomes very practical in its outworking. A number of years ago, we had one of those wonderful encounters where a pipe burst and we invited a plumber to come. And I think there's a school, a graduation school for everybody who's a tradesperson because the final thing they teach them is that look of disapproval. Whether it's a mechanic or a plumber or an electrician, they come and what you think is simply a burst pipe is truly third world disaster happening in your bedroom upstairs. You just did not have the ability to comprehend it. And not only is it a third world disaster, but you're gonna pay very handsomely for it. The more the head shakes, the deeper your pockets will have to go. <laughs> and so I said to Jane when this happened to us a couple of times, surely it can't be that difficult to fix a pipe because I've spoken to the people who've come. And I think if they could do it, I could probably have a go. So I started studying plumbing, started looking on the internet for insights into how to fix pipes. You know, all of that was great, and when they came the next time to fix a pipe, I knew exactly what they were doing, but I'd never actually fixed a pipe. So I thought maybe something's missing from my armory as a person who's a potential plumber. I'll have a go. I have a have a go international ministry all over the world. Have a go. What's, what's the worst thing that could happen? Oh, a pipe might burst. It's already burst. So have a go. You put the things together. We started to understand a little bit about it. And you know what? I have saved thousands of pounds. Thousands of pounds. It's one thing to read the manual. It's a whole other thing to fix the pipe. And if you want to fix the pipe well, you need to read the manual over and over and over again. But if you want to know how it really works, have a go at fixing a pipe. Because when you have a go at fixing a pipe, everything you think you know is challenged. And that's the same with Christianity. That's how it works. We have the truth. And if that truth is applied, it sets us free. 
The truth is the information and the knowledge of a God who is above all people the most brilliant and knows everything about everything. But if all I have is head knowledge, I've read the manual and I haven't tried to fix the problem, then I have no experiential knowledge. And without experiential knowledge, I just have a head full of information. Everything Jesus asked you to do, he asked you to do because he wants you to actualize what you claim to believe. Pray for the sick. Why? Because unless you pray for them, you won't realize the power that God's deposited in your life. Or you can sing about it, talk about it, go to a seminar about it. Do the work of an evangelist. Why? Because you may feel completely inadequate, but if you start talking about Jesus, you are taking the truth, you are absorbing it into your life, and you're applying it to the way you live. And you won't know how much truth you have until you apply it. Hello? Third thing, comprehension. This is when it moves from information to a place of understanding. And we need to comprehend. I call this an aha moment where I've read something, and you've probably done this in the Bible many times. I've read something and read something and read something, and suddenly a light comes on, and I think, oh, that's how that works. It's an aha moment, and we need comprehension, and we definitely need concentration, and we most profoundly need repetition. But here's the greatest one of them all, reflection. You see, reflection causes me not just to know a truth, but to understand its working and the way it moves in and around my life. I move beyond having a piece of information about something to having an understanding, listen carefully, this is important, an understanding to the nature and the character and the ways of the Holy Spirit. You see, one of my greatest weaknesses, and I suppose perhaps it's a strength at times, is that I have this tendency to want to know how things work. Are you like me? No. <laughs> Thank God for that. So when we're praying for people and we've seen God do things, my question isn't, oh God, you did something. My question is, why did you do it today? What was there about this situation that caused you to move? I want to understand you, Jesus. I want to understand how you minister to people. When you've counseled thousands of people and some are set free and some are not, how come some are set free? What is it about that, God? What did we say? Did we say anything? Was it something they did? I want to understand how you do what you do so that the next time I find myself in that, I am not bewildered by a process. Do you know that God has ways? Psalmist David says, teach me your ways, O God. Listen to this phrase, that I may walk in them and enjoy your favor all the days of my life. It's one thing to know his word. It's a whole other thing to know his ways. And we need to look beyond just the information to the revelation of the nature and the character and the person of God. And the only way to do that is through the discipline of study. As you reflect back on how God did what he did and how that truth became a reality in you, how that truth affected everything around you, and you start to think, well, what did it impact me? What was it about it that happened that way? You start to understand something of the nature and the character of God. And here's the most profound thing I'm going to say to you today. Real study, study of God's word, 
where we're not just glossing over the pages, but trying to concentrate, trying to teach our minds how to, in a repetitive way, understand a truth as we align ourselves with the grasping of that knowledge and the comprehension that it brings and we reflect back across how it was working its way in me and through me all the time. I have to stay humble. I have to stay humble. If at any point on that particular process I start to think that I am better than I am or I think I know more than I am, I am going to miss what it is that God wants to do. You cannot come to the Word of God without humility. Well, God bless you. Have a good day. Go to 2 Timothy 2 for me, please. And if you could stand at the same time, that would be good. Bless you. I'm not going to put this up on the screen if that's okay because I want you to find it in your Bible or on your phone and I'd like us to read it together. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. Are we all there? My prayer is as we read this together that in our hearts we would make some agreement Confession, commitment to becoming people who are disciplined in the study of God's word. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 says this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Shall we read it again? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. It wouldn't hurt us to read it again. Because repetition is the mechanism and means by which engagement And God's word begins to form in us. Why don't you read it to somebody near you? It sounds a little bit provocative, but we all love each other in this room, don't we? Why don't we do that? Why don't we bless somebody by reading it over their life and declaring it over their heart? If you're watching us online, please just read it out yourself over your family, over your circumstances. I I think sometimes we find moments like this a little bit awkward because we're not really familiar with the concepts of speaking life over another person. But, you know, whoever's standing next to you, 
they will really change if they do what this invites them to do. And surely as a Christian, you would want that. You would want their life to be rich and full of God. You'd want them to be free. You'd want them to be healed. You'd want them to be set into a place where abundance and blessing is coming. So can I speak it out over you? Would you receive it from me as a blessing? Would that be okay? Christian Life Church, always do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, Father, I decree and declare that over your people. For in this world where all kinds of truths are vying for our agreement and our attention, I pray, Lord, that your truth, the truth of who you are and what you say and what you know will become our reality. I want to be like David. I want to hide your word in my heart. And when the opportunists and the circumstances of my life come to seek to draw something from me that isn't godly, I want to have it so buried in me, Lord. My automatic response is to do what brings glory to you. Lord, I pray your blessing over our hearts and our minds as we seek to become disciplined individuals when it comes to the study of your word. And Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you that your word has power to transform and to change and to renew. And we thank you, Lord, that heaven and earth will pass away. All of this that is temporary will fade. But your word and the church, your people, will live on forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful bank holiday.